0: I became a Christian in 1973 as a college student, and uh, I was introduced early on to a passage in the New Testament that uh, is familiar to many of you, others it might be new to, but it's called the Great Commission. It's actually found in four different places. And the Great Commission refers to the last command that Jesus gave to his followers. It's recorded most fully and helpfully at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the last few verses. And Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that command is very important because he he told uh, his first followers and every subsequent generation of Christians that we are to go out and make disciples. We won't take time to look more fully at the commission itself because it describes how disciples are made and the process in which they undergo. But it really defines this verse, the Christian movement, from its inception. And while I was just introduced to it as a new Christian For 2,000 years, people had reflected on those words and thought about them, and they are really the basis of a whole clash, a cultural clash that there is today between true biblical Christianity and uh, worldly thinking, because worldly thinking says uh, it would be appropriate for Christians to believe whatever they want to believe, but please don't tell other people about it. And yet, this commission says, go and make disciples. And it's like built in to the very nature of Christian faith that those who possess it have also both a desire and a command given by Christ to spread it to other people. Now, discipleship is a huge topic. It's one we talk about all the time here because it's the, the very heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian and to to follow Christ, and to live a Christian life. But essentially, discipleship means being conformed to Jesus in every area of life. I mean, ultimately, discipleship is becoming like Christ, not so much like Christ in the way that he looked or some of the cultural things that he did that were rooted in the first century and in the fact that he was a Jewish man. But it means being like him in terms of his character, his relationships with other people, his attitudes about God and about people, and things like that. And he said, part of discipleship is teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And so it's a, a process that goes on throughout life in which a person makes a multitude of choices to either be conformed to Christ or to move away from to, from conformity to him. And so everything we do as Christians should be about discipleship. We're here to become better followers of Christ. We're here to make other people or help other people become disciples, and that means making more disciples and better disciples. So it's a long process, and we're given in that a number of means by which we can participate in that. But uh, one of the things we want to think about this morning when we think about the core values of our church, the things that we really want to characterize the kind of church we are, is the emphasis that we give to relationships. And there's a statement that we came up with a long time ago and it says God changes lives best when truth is experienced in the context of loving spiritual relationships. Our our church started as a small group in 1984, a group that my wife and I started in a home and after we began the church we began to multiply small groups and that's what we've done since then and that beginning point is very important because essentially a church, at least a healthy church, is made up of a whole bunch of relationships that people have in various kinds of groups and with various kinds of people. And uh, this morning I want you to consider the fact that Being a part of a smaller group of Christians, and we'll say more about that, but being a part of a smaller group of Christians is absolutely essential to discipleship. It's not an optional thing that you can do. And who would have thought that over the last 29 years, the greatest change would have gone on within my own heart and my experience of what relationships are all about? Because I came into this having been in a campus ministry and worked with college students and And known for a long time that small groups are very key to how the Christian movement multiplies. And they're very important for people in terms of growth. But a lot of things through the years have helped me to see that there's something far deeper than just the fact that it's a good strategy. It is a good strategy, but it's a good strategy because of something more important than that. This morning, I just want to do three things. I want to give you an important perspective that you need to think about and hopefully adopt. And uh, at the end, I'm going to give you another perspective. So, like, there's two perspectives, and in between, I'm going to sandwich some information about our groups and group life, what we do in terms of of small groups together. So some perspective uh, and sandwich between it, we'll have uh, some explanation of our small group ministries. Now, we live in a certain kind of culture and and you're aware of that, Uh, we live in what is called Western culture, and it's a culture that is changing. All cultures change, but we're also more aware now than we were in the past that there are many other cultures in the world. The rapid communication that we have today makes us uh, able to see what is going on in other places that are vastly different from us at uh, any given point. And in a culture, we have a certain way of seeing things. We understand how life works. And part of growing up in a culture is learning to navigate your ways through the various expectations that the culture has for you. And that's just a part of life. Everyone has to do it everywhere in the world. But we know here in the United States what's appropriate to say when you go to visit someone at a funeral home whose loved one has died. We know the kinds of things we ought to say and the kinds of subjects we ought to avoid. We know that when we greet a young mother and she's holding her baby, we don't say, that is the funniest looking kid I've ever seen in my life. We might want to say that you know, at times, but we don't say that. Culture helps us to navigate our way through in a way that, that allows us to live life most comfortably. We're aware that there's other cultures. And when cultures become close that are different, they, they clash into each other. I had a missionary tell me a story that really has stuck in my mind, that he was working in a, a country in Europe, uh, actually down in southern, eastern Europe. I think it was Hungary uh, or Romania. I can't remember. But he's working in this country. It's a country that values relationships in a different way than his background. He had Uh, a young man uh, who had come to faith in Christ and was growing, and he was working with this man to help him become a leader in the Christian movement in that area. And uh, as he was helping him grow, they had an appointment one day that they were supposed to meet for coffee, and there was a subject they were going to talk about, and the young man didn't show up. And the missionary was upset by this, and he thought, well, now is the time to teach this young man about punctuality. Punctuality is an important aspect of discipleship. So the next time he saw him, he sat him down and began to talk to him and, and asked him, why, why is it you didn't make this appointment that we'd set up to meet for coffee? And, and the man said, well, my neighbor's uncle showed up from Australia. He's been living out of country, and he came back, and he showed up, and the, I, I had to stay for the party and the missionary was just, you know, used every verse he could think of about punctuality and the importance of, of not disrespecting people that you've made a commitment to and that that sort of thing. And when he was done with his lecture, the the young man said, I just want to point something out to you. And the missionary said, okay. And the young man said, you know, there's a list of qualifications of elders that's given in First Timothy chapter 2. And I notice in there that one of the qualities listed is showing hospitality. But there's not a quality listed in there of punctuality. (laughs) And the missionary who was telling the story said, you know, ouch. Because the man was right. Now, what the point of that is not that not being punctual as a value that we ought to adapt. I don't think that at all. I don't think there's anything right or wrong, particularly, about cultures. I mean, some things are wrong, obviously, but there are many things that we do differently. It's a difference in emphasis. And the fact is, when it comes to hospitality, cultures like that are much closer to the biblical worldview. It doesn't mean that they're better than us. It just means that on that one point... They are closer to the biblical worldview. Punctuality is something that is an important aspect of life, too, but we should note it's not listed as a character quality of a leader in the church. What is listed is showing hospitality. And we need to take that into consideration and apply it to ourselves. Now, I still expect the staff to be there at 12 noon on Wednesday when we meet or to let me know why they're not going to be. I don't expect them to float in at 1230. Same thing's true of worship, by the way. I don't know if you caught on to that, but it starts at 9.30 and kind of expect people to be here. But, you know, what we need to think about is the fact that our culture is, is a certain culture that actually created the modern world. The Western culture did, and we're a part of that. Culture is always changing. We shouldn't feel that our culture is somehow bad or wicked and everyone else is good, or vice versa. But what I want to say is that in modern culture, we value certain things that make discipleship difficult. We, we tend to emphasize certain things that don't make it impossible because all of us come from the same background. We have these same values built into us by our education, our parents, our experience, all of that. But uh, we have a paradigm for how life works and this is how we think. We think, I'm just going to use four words, we think individual. After all, in America, we're the descendants of the pioneers. And they were there was hardy folk who went out against all odds, on their own individually and in small groups, like husbands and wives, and and they went and established all of the cities that there are in the Western United States. And so we have a tendency to approach life, particularly in the United States, more than any other country, in a very Individualistic way. We are the ones who ask the question always, What's in it for me? We also think short term. We have a tendency in our culture to set immediate goals. We take short classes and we have short attention spans. We want to see things get done. We're impatient when they don't get done. And rather than getting better, that aspect of our culture has gotten stronger and stronger with the advent of technology. In fact, it's probably impacted the whole world in that sense. We also have a tendency, though this is changing in Western culture, to stress the cognitive, and by that I mean the intellectual. We have a great stress on understanding. Our educational system, which built the modern world, is very based on understanding certain concepts, memorizing ideas. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but we emphasize the cognitive over the relational and the experiential. Again, that's one that's changing, and I think most of us recognize that that's helpful. But we are in a culture that emphasizes the cognitive. And lastly, we think programmed. If we take a class, no matter what it is, we want a syllabus to tell us, here's what you're going to learn, here are your responsibilities, here's the teacher's responsibilities. At the end, or in the middle and the end, we want a test that will test each one of those things. Are we learning what we were told we were going to learn? And can we pass the test? it's going to tell us whether or not we did our job and whether or not we feel the teacher did his or her job. So we have a tendency to think in these four ways, individual, short-term, cognitive, and programmed. And so when we bring that into our Christian faith, we tend to color our understanding of what Christianity is all about in those terms. Now, I'm not telling you that that's a terrible thing. In fact, it's just reality. We have to, on some level, deal with that, think about it, uh, wrestle with it. But I do want you to know that the biblical worldview is different, and it is reflected in different ways in different cultures that are still found in this world. In order to maximize your experience of discipleship, You need to begin to think in a different way, or at least you need to open your mind to the possibility that not all of the ways that we normally approach life are the most helpful. So I'm not saying that you can do away with the individualism that is built into you. That would be very difficult for most of us to do. That's a part of our whole upbringing and temperament it's become. And so... But we do need to add an understanding that that's not enough in order to fully experience the kind of things the Bible talks about. Because the Bible thinks family. Consistently in the Bible, the the perspective is that the smallest unit of society is the family. In the very beginning, it was started on the sixth day of creation when God created the man and the woman and gave them to each other. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And from that point, There was given the command to form families and that those families would be the unit that would go out and establish culture throughout the world. The family is the basic unit of all society. Anything else that you experience in life comes out of the family. Parents are the prototype of any kind of authority figure that you ever experience in life. And uh, the Bible thinks in that way. And so, when you think of discipleship, you have to think in terms of family. And I don't just mean literally of your own family. Obviously, that's true. But I mean, you must think of discipleship as a set of family relationships that you're involved in. And the church as a larger family made up of smaller families. Um, I don't mean that church, church life, discipleship, small groups, anything like that, takes the place of your family. That's not the basic idea there, but it is that when you go into a group uh, or a setting in the church of any kind, you are not simply going into a classroom in which the person up front is going to teach you things, and you're going to write them down, and there will be a test at some point, either given by God or by someone else, to determine whether or not you've learned them. That's not the biblical worldview. Now, this is a difficult one to adopt because of fractured families and the distance that many of us live from other family members. It makes it hard for us to understand the concept, but the fact is the church becomes a very important place where there are fathers and mothers and children. Although applying it means that spiritually you understand there are always newer people to the faith who are like children in their understanding of Scripture and what it means to live the Christian life, and there are older people and the interaction of the family members in various settings becomes the key to what it means to learn to follow Christ. I've had many people tell me how important it has been for them in a group with, uh, say, some older couples who had already raised their children. The things that were said and talked about, even though the subject may not have been child-rearing, had great impact on them as they were seeking to raise their children. And I can say that. myself as well. You have to think not only family, but long term. And by long term, I mean lifetime. That the church provides you with a set of relationships that are not going to have impact like a class that you take for 15 weeks and it's over. And you've either learned the material or not learned the material. The church, the people of God, is the place in which you will immerse yourself for the rest of your life. That's what discipleship means. And in that context, it may not be one church but it's going to be among the people of God in various places. In that context, you're going to grow and learn to follow Christ. You have to think long-term, not just short-term, in terms of what you're going to get out of something. Instead of thinking merely cognitive, you have to think whole person. So when, when you come, say, into a small group setting in the church, uh, or not in the church, but I mean within the fellowship of, of God's people, if you go to a small group, so perhaps meeting in a home, you, you need to think not just what am I going to learn tonight, though that is important. Bible study is one aspect of uh, that, as we'll see. But you have to think the whole person, how are we together going to uh, understand, come to know Jesus, and experience him more together as a group. So you bring everything you are to your group when you come. You bring your mind and your feelings and your behaviors of the last week and uh, you struggle together with your relationships and your responsibilities, again, you're thinking of what is it God wants to do to shape my life to be more like Jesus? Not just what can I learn tonight that I can determine whether or not I'm growing. And you also have to think, lastly, relational. Relational.
1: Now, well, that's,
0: a, that's a hard one to explain, but I'm using it, obviously, in contrast to the idea of programmed. You have to think of a small group of Christians where you're meeting with God together. That's the whole point. We're meeting with God together. When I was young, as a college student, I went to small groups so I could learn something about God. And I would know what it was. I didn't know the Bible very well, and so I could learn something about the Bible and hear other people share things that they had learned, some people who had been Christians much longer than I had. God has given to us his word so that we can grow. He's given to us his Holy Spirit. But he's also given to us relationships that we have within the body of Christ that over a period of time shape us. And you really can't leave that aspect out, the redemptive kind of relationships that you're able to have with other Christians to help you do that. Well, that's, that's a perspective you need to adopt. What I'm saying is that I'm not asking you to give up all the things that are part of our culture. Those are important, and they're values that we hold But what we have to do is we kind of have to add to that an understanding that if you want to read the Bible with understanding, if you want to experience what it talks about, you do need to grasp that they're coming from a different perspective. It is more whole person oriented, it's much more family oriented, relationally oriented, and long term. Now, in the context of that perspective, let's think about our our small group ministry. Small groups, uh, in some ways, is a program, and what I mean is, not wrong that it's a program, but it's, it's something where we have a list. It's out there in the hallway. There's a list of all the small groups, what nights that they meet, where they meet, that sort of thing. And um, the thing is, that's a little bit deceptive because it implies that those are the only kind of relationships that we value, which isn't true. This statement that I, I used earlier Uh, God Changes Lives Best in the Context of Loving Spiritual Relationships, that statement applies to any kind of setting in which you find yourselves among Christians. So it can be a ministry team, it can be a one-on-one where you meet for breakfast with someone, It, it, it can be a small group, it can be couples getting together and going out and talking about spiritual things and what it means to be followers of Christ. Whatever the setting is, it's the relationships that God builds between people that uh, provide that. But one of the things that healthy churches do is we help people to find those kinds of relationships in a society where it is difficult to find them. They don't naturally happen for many people. And some of those are the groups that we have now. We list some of our groups, but the fact is there are others there that people have formed on their own that don't have new members coming to them. Some of those groups we on staff know about, some of them we don't. And uh, we don't only say, well, the groups that are listed on our, our sheet, those are the only good groups to go to, the only true groups, you know, genuine groups, don't go to anything else. That's not at all what we're saying. But we are providing these groups. And I want to tell you about our small group network and how it functions. Keeping in mind, this isn't the only avenue of discipleship for people. But let me tell you a few things about it. I'm just going to use key words and then explain them. The first one is shepherding. We think of uh, our small groups as the, our basic communities of nurture. The, the way that we want to care for the body of Christ here in our local community, those who have committed themselves to being a part of this local church, the way we want to care with them, for them is primarily through small groups. The reason is that in a church of our size, not that we're huge, but we're big enough that it would be impossible for me or even uh, 10 staff members if we had so many, to be able to really oversee the spiritual lives of this many people. And so what we do is we help the small group leaders to be the place, help their group to become the place where we seek to care for people. Our small group leaders want to function as shepherds. That's something we talk about a lot with the small group leaders who are helping other people learn to walk with God. I tend to Describe it to them like being a player coach. You're a person who's living the Christian life, but you're also coaching other people to do the same thing. So on one level, you're peers. You're just another Christian. But on another level, you're seeking to gather a group of Christians and help them to grow spiritually. And the elders of the church, of which we only have five, the elders who all lead small groups, see the small group leaders who are not elders as being shepherds together with them to carry out that aspect of of the ministry of an elder, so shepherding is the first thing. And then a second word I want to use to describe our groups, at least the way we would like our community groups to function, is uh, the word balance. There are usually uh, five basic elements that people describe as having in small groups, and they are worship, Bible study, fellowship, prayer, and mission. And uh, I show a pie here that has five equal parts, and that's not quite accurate. I'll say that in a minute, but let me describe these five parts. What we're saying is that in a healthy group, all five of these elements over time should be present. Worship is uh, where people are learning to praise God for who he is and what he has done. Bible study is learning and applying God's word to everyday life. And that's one of the things that groups do. Fellowship is building supportive, uh, mutually accountable relationships between people. Prayer is both listening to God and sharing intimately with God. And it's also interceding for other people and interceding for God's work in the world. And in groups, people do that together in healthy uh, groups. And the last is mission. Mission is doing things that impact our society share the gospel, help the, the church in its mission, and that kind of thing. Now, all five of these ingredients may not be present on any particular night that a group meets. I kind of think of it like a family. At One time in my life when we had small children at home, and we had these four children sitting around the table, I gave a lot of thought to what is it that goes on in a family, in a family meal, and I remember identifying seven or eight things that happen. It doesn't mean they all happen every night, every time the family gathers around the table. They don't. It doesn't mean that they're each given equal emphasis in terms of time. That's not true at all. But it means that in a healthy family, as the family grows up, there are at least these seven things that on a regular basis are part of what the family is doing together, and it's the same way in a group. So the the fact that each of these slivers of the pie have have the same size, isn't significant. It's not even true when groups meet. But what I am saying is that any group that focuses on just one or two elements, and that's all they focus on, it may be a very good, a very helpful, a very legitimate group. I'm not saying it isn't, but it's not the kind of group that we, as a church, want to start in order to foster discipleship. So, for example, we may have at times um, a group that could be described as an intense accountability group. There have been a few times in our church, I don't know of any going on right now, but where some men have uh, gathered other men that they know are struggling with pornography, and they've met together and read through some material or asked a person to lead the group who is more skilled at leading an accountability type of group like that, and that's been a very helpful thing to do. But that is a short-term, shot-in-the-arm kind of thing to help. That's not a long-term sort of group, and probably all five of these elements wouldn't be present there, and that's fine, but those aren't the groups that we are spending our energy, at least those of us in leadership, starting. Um, There are short-term mission teams. I led one to Albania this summer, and there were 10 people on the team plus me. We met together for you know, a number of weeks before we went there, we prepared in certain ways and some of these things we did, and obviously the mission part of it, that's what the whole purpose was, but that was a particular short-term thing that we were doing. I wasn't concerned that every single one of these elements be there uh, or be present all of the time. That's a good group. There's a supper club that people sometimes get together for. There's a euchre club that we have one or two I hear about periodically in the church, you know, I mean, there's things like that so that are all good. Uh, there are groups that help people focus on recovering from an addiction, whatever. We're not saying there's anything wrong with those groups. We're not saying that the church wouldn't be a good avenue to have some of them or anything like that. I wouldn't want anyone to perceive it. But when we list our community groups, we are thinking about discipleship groups that focus on balancing these five elements an emphasis on all five of these things over a period of time, and that's what we mean by balanced. Now, balance doesn't mean equal, I said that before, but for example, when a group starts, oftentimes the fellowship aspect is a huge part of the pie. People are getting to know each other, and you do a lot of icebreakers and getting to know you kind of activities. You have dinners together and things like that. When a group is much more mature, they may give much more time to Bible study. At least that's often my experience. But it's never that Bible study swallows everything else up or that fellowship is all that the group is about. It just means that during particular seasons, the group may devote itself to uh, specific things more than others. Another thing about our groups is uh, defined by the word leadership. Our community groups are led by skilled leaders. I don't mean all of them have equal skills, but I mean that they've all been apprenticed in some way within our group life. That's how we prepare leaders. We allow them to be a part of learning to lead the group along with the leader. And in some ways, and when it's best, we formally apprentice them so that the group knows that here's a person who is eventually going to start a group on his or her own, or here's a couple who is going to do that together. So um, each are apprenticed. And our groups are also led, the ones that we list, by supported leaders, what we mean is we network our groups so that there are three coaching couples in the church. My wife Laura and I are one, Paul and Katie Cronenwet, my associate pastor, is another, and, uh, and uh, John and Sheila Connolly are the third. And each of us have three to five groups that we're responsible for. And we meet with the group leaders once a month and talk about leading groups and spiritual life and what it means to grow spiritually and how to help other people do that. And it's like a mentoring process that goes on. So we have leaders who are prepared and they're supported, so they're not just, you know, now we trained you, you went through a class, go on lead a group for the rest of your life, be warmed and filled, you know, have fun. It's not that way. Um, another comment about structure. Our groups meet in different patterns, but um, they all meet either twice a month or every week basically. I guess there are some that meet three times a month. So it's not that the pattern is exactly the same in every case. I've noticed through the years, uh, having started this almost 30 years ago, that that there's been somewhat of a change. This is cultural to a large extent. Groups liked meeting every week. When Laura and I were younger and we had small children, we expected, and, and at that time, We got babysitters. We never thought about providing babysitters for people. and It didn't uh, create a problem. Well, one thing I've noticed as time has gone on is that my children, the generation coming after me, and those in their age group, well, as they're having children, they want to have babysitters many times. And so a lot of our groups have started providing babysitting. That's not true of all of them, but some of them in order to meet that need. And I've noticed that groups tend to meet less frequently than they did a generation ago. Often groups now are meeting twice a month rather than meeting every week, and that's fine. You know, I don't think there's a, a right or wrong. Everyone knows that if you only meet twice a month, it's going to take longer for a group to gel, but that doesn't matter as long as you're willing to, to put up with that because you're not together as often. So our groups meet in a different pattern. They do meet at least twice a month. Um, generally, our groups meet starting in late September through May, Some start a little earlier, some end a little earlier. Uh, We generally take the summer months off, but that's not true of all the groups. Some of them meet through the summer, just right on through. Uh, A couple of them that meet weekly meet every other week during the summer or something like that. But most of our groups uh, have some break during the summer. Our groups that are listed, at least, are open for new people to attend. And there's a lot behind that that I want to take time to talk about. But, you know, there's a difference between open and closed groups, and there's values in both of them. We do have groups that you would consider closed. I wish there was another word to use for that because we don't mean closed relationally in a a negative sense. We just mean the group commits to being together, and uh, they're not going to have other people join them. That's why we don't list them so that other people don't just show up or something like that. And they might have more people join, but it's only by group invitation. The group says, let's invite so-and-so to join with us or something. We generally don't list those groups just because they're not open. I think um, closed groups have a certain value to them that are lost when you have an open group, and they also have certain liabilities. And uh, the same is true of the opposite. That's why we're not trying to do just one or the other. But generally, the groups that we list are open for new people to attend. And uh, we like our groups to generally have 12 or less participants. Now, that's not true of all of our groups because we need more leaders in order to make that a reality and we're slowly working towards that. But generally, we have found that groups are most healthy if they have like eight to 12 people coming. The leader is most able to deal with that number of people. It's much harder once the group gets larger, unless you're a person like myself who is full-time working and that kind of thing and thinking about, about people. It's difficult for a shepherd to, uh, like a husband and wife, often to deal with more than 12 people in a group, I've, I've found. And then the last thing is multiplication. Not just structure, but multiplication. Our groups are committed to multiplying by developing new leaders within the fellowship of the group. That's, that's the basic idea. As the group develops, kind of like a family, as children grow up in a family, you know, if they're normal and healthy, they each are being trained, in a sense, to be the mothers and fathers of the next generation. Well, in a sense, that's what goes on in a group, but it's not quite equivalent. Not every person is going to lead a group who is involved in a group, nor should they. But some of those will be people who, in the context of a group, as they grow up, will be prepared to lead a group. And so we try to help identify those people. If uh, you would like to be an apprentice small group leader, I'd love to have you tell me. I've thought about teaching a class. They would meet every other week on Sunday morning where we'd just talk about the basic elements of small group life and what it means to lead a group. And if anyone comes who wants to be an apprentice, whether or not they ever go on to lead a group, I think it would be helpful, and they may do that. But um, if you are not in a group, and you would like to be an apprentice, let one of the coaches know that I mentioned, Paul and Katie, or Laura and I, or John and Sheila Connolly. If you are in a group, let your group leader know that you would like to to learn about leading a group. But our groups are committed to multiplying new groups. We do that in a lot of different ways. Sometimes a couple who has been raised up and prepared within the group will go off and start a group on their own and leave the the previous group and just open up to begin to meet. Sometimes a a group will uh, multiply by dividing, and some couples will go with a new leader. I call that hiving off, like a beehive, and starting another group. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do it. We try to do it based on the needs of the group. One note. If you know anything about small group philosophy, there's an idea called cell church. The cell church model attempts to multiply groups every single year. Each group is expected to multiply every year. We do not hold to the cell church model. Groups may take three, four years to develop, and uh, we don't have some kind of programmatic thing that you have to multiply after a year, but I do stress with groups it's a good thing to seek to multiply. That's just a little bit about our group life. Feel free to ask me questions afterwards, or any one of the staff or the elders. But let me give you one final perspective. The first one was, in order to fully participate in discipleship, you kind of have to to uh, change your perspective by adopting some values that the Bible really stresses uh, that have to do with things that aren't stressed in our culture as much. But the last thing I want to say is. Uh, almost uh, an individualistic statement, but it's one that's true. One of the perspectives you really have to adopt if you want to grow spiritually is that your discipleship is your responsibility. We have a tendency, despite the fact that we come from a very individualistic kind of culture, we have a tendency to be consumers in our culture. And so we go to every place that we go, but even to the church, saying, I need to find out what's there for me to help me grow. And if we perceive that the church doesn't have what we want, then we go somewhere else and, and seek to find it. I would say that those of us who are more towards the end of our parenting responsibility than we are towards the beginning, and parenting, by the way, goes on through all of life until you die, But those of us that are closer to the end can say something to those of you who are younger. And that is, ultimately, your child is responsible for his or her own success in life. Now, you have great power in that, particularly when they're young. When they're small, you have great influence on the direction that they go. And when they're young, you're meant to exert control over some of their behavior and so forth. But you know, as a child begins to grow up, They very early exert their own personality. And so much of parenting is helping to shape that. And the fact is there's all kinds of people that are going to help them to grow uh, as a human being or to grow spiritually. There are uh, you, you know, as parents, there are teachers, there are friends that they have, there are employers that they will have in life. All kinds of people are going to help them to grow. But ultimately, their success is dependent on them. And, And in the same way, our responsibility is to seek to follow Christ. It's not something the pastor can make us do. It's not something our Bible study leader can make us do. It's something they can assist in. They can help provide an environment in which you can make those choices to grow. But it's our responsibility to um, seek to put those into practice and grow. So I I tell people, if there's not a group that you feel meets your needs, we'd love to see you start one. I I have always felt like we need to have groups that that meet on a Sunday morning, say, during one of the services for people who literally can't go to a group during the week. There are people who work afternoons and we don't provide things during the day. That would be a great time to do it, but it's just depending on having someone, dependent on having someone who would be willing to do that. It's not my responsibility to make someone do that. It's my responsibility to pray and give the opportunity for people to rise up and be desirous of doing that sort of thing. So a basic perspective you need to adopt is that your discipleship is your responsibility. And my hope uh, for all of you this year is that you'll you'll take responsibility and you'll see uh, those words in our core value as really being true and something you need to put into practice. God changes lives best when truth is experienced in the context of spiritual loving relationships. Jesus' whole life illustrates that his discipleship of the 12 apostles and the others who formed the foundation of the entire Christian movement when he went out is something we need to pay attention to and put into practice in our own lives. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you have given to us the redemptive relationships of your people. We pray that you would help us not just to look to others uh, in the sense of demanding that they come through for us and do the things that we feel we need, but to see ourselves as participants in what you want to do in and through us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.